0: Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Del Minutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet Understand. Jesus' mission needs a miracle. Thank you. You don't have to look far back in history to find human beings are untrustworthy. One example among many that we could cite, in two weeks, 100,000 people were killed. 100,000 neighbors tutsi neighbors of their uh, Bahutus under the noses of a un peacekeeping force that did nothing to stop them but everyday life confirms exactly the same thing doesn't it human beings are not reliable that's why we bolt our doors shut at night that's why we lock up our our bikes that's why we don't share personal information online or with strangers those are all sensible actions, aren't they? Because human beings are unreliable. You are not trustworthy. But Jesus has placed the hope of humanity into the hands of humans. He's placed the message of salvation, the gospel, into human hands. First of all, the human hands of the disciples, and then through them, the hands of the church. So quite frankly, Jesus' mission needs a miracle, doesn't it? The passage we just read should cause a reaction. And in fact, there are reactions in this passage. You may have noticed them. There are three reactions of Jesus to three different situations. First of all, in verses 1 to 10, you have Jesus moved with compassion before a world in need. Second, in verses 11 to 13, you have Jesus deeply troubled before a skeptical generation. And thirdly, we see Jesus dumbfounded before the unbelief of his messengers. Let's explore each of these reactions of Jesus in sequence. So first of all, verses 1 to 10. Jesus is moved with compassion before a world in need. Mark, the author, has already introduced Jesus as God's chosen king in chapter 1. He's God's chosen king who has a gospel message, a good news message to announce to the world. In that same chapter, you are also introduced to his first disciples, disciples who, who Mark will actually call apostles, meaning sent ones or messengers later on. Over the next six chapters, we see Jesus' incredible authority that's on display we should see that he has—he displays incredible authority in his teaching, also over evil spirits, over disease, over nature, and even over the forgiveness of sins and over death as well. All this attracts crowds. In fact, that's where we find him, isn't it, in the first verse of chapter 8. It tells us in a, just the verse before in chapter 8, um, Chapter 7, verse 31, that they're in the region of the Decapolis, which will come up later. But in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8, Jesus calls his disciples to himself and he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me for now three days, now for three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. I wonder what image you have of Jesus this evening. I wonder what image comes to mind when you think of the person of Jesus Christ. Would it be a resident policeman? Someone who's always got a notepad in his hand, just ready to write the next naughty thing that somebody's done. Or perhaps you think of him as the Jesus who we sometimes see on the ceiling of cathedrals. And his hands are always kind of like this, very hard to do this. Um, And he is kind of uh, expressionless and always about 30 meters above our heads and above all of our problems, isn't he? But now consider the Jesus that we see in verses 2 and 3. He just spent three days with perfect strangers. Now, I come from, well, I've been in France now for a little while. Uh, we, it's a culture of hospitality. I know here in London I've been very well welcomed, uh, so I'm sure you know a bit about that. But even in France, I really appreciate it when my guests go home after the first evening. But you notice that Jesus has spent three days with these people. He's not floating 30 meters above their heads. He's among the crowd. He sees them. He's rubbing shoulders with them. He knows, he's getting to know them. But he's also not among them, you see, like a, a resident policeman. You sense compassion and love that is exuding from him. He's a lot more like a shepherd with his flock. And like any good shepherd, he knows the needs of the sheep that he is with. And that's why at the end of the third day, Jesus notices that the crowd's provisions of food are running low. And the emotion that fills Jesus at that moment is compassion. Do you realize that compassion, when Jesus looks at human needs, the most natural thing for him to feel is compassion. Do you believe that? And you know what that means? That means that if you are coming here this morning and you're feeling burdened or weighed down by something in your life, by some particular suffering, or maybe by sin that you're dealing with, that you're having trouble putting to death, Jesus is not here presenting himself as a cop, making sure to tell you off if if you've done something wrong. He's also not indifferent to your problems. He is Welcoming, with arms open in compassion towards you. In fact, it's your need that that arouses Jesus' compassion. Without your need, he would not. We would not see that part of his character. But the mood shifts in chapter in verse four. The disciples understand that Jesus wants to deal, or he's he's expecting kind of them to deal with this problem of hunger. In the crowd, and they answer, perhaps a bit sarcastically, "How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place?" We might wish to excuse them, wouldn't we? But then we do have chapter six and seven of Mark. In chapter six, verses seven to thirteen, we learn that Jesus, the one that God sent, has also sent the disciples out previously on a mission. At that time, he had given them his same message to preach. He had given them the same authority to cast out demons, to to do miracles. And that's not all. If you look at chapter 6, verses 30 to 46, Jesus had actually asked his disciples to feed another and larger crowd of 5,000 people. But the disciples were skeptical, and Jesus fed the whole crowd himself using a meal deal that he multiplied. But despite these two remarkable experiences, the disciples repeat the same question they had asked back in chapter 6, verse 37 Where on earth are we going to find a pret out here in the sticks? But perhaps we're not so different from them, are we? Perhaps we're not all that different from the disciples. For those of us who are Christians, how many times have we asked God to provide for us in an impossible situation and seen him come through? We've seen him come through not always in the way we expected, in fact often not, but it's always turned out to be wiser and better for us in the long term, hasn't it? And what have we done the next time an impossible situation has come our way? Of course we've trusted Jesus, haven't we? probably not at least I know that's not my case I have a tendency to be very much like the disciples ready to ask again how are we going to get out of this how are we going to deal with this impossible situation Jesus replies to the disciples question in verse 5 by repeating his own question that he had in chapter 6 verse 38 how many loaves do you have And they answered seven. Then Jesus jumps into action. He seats the crowd, just as he had done in chapter six. He takes the bread, thanks God, breaks it, and gives it to his disciples to distribute to the crowd, just like he had done in chapter six. And then just like he had done in chapter six, we see in in verse eight that he tells everyone, or he has everyone eat, and it says that they were satisfied. Okay, but maybe you're wondering, why on earth do we have a feeding of the 4,000 when we already have all of these things happening in the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6? Why do we need chapter 8? Well, I think the answer lies in the differences that exist between these two stories. Now, let's look at these. Back in chapter 6, Mark makes, an allusion, er, makes a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. But if you look at chapter 8, the passage we just read, at least I can't see any, any clear ones. If you look back at chapter 6, verse 43, the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers, a number that often represents the 12 tribes of Israel in the Bible. But back in chapter 8, we have seven, seven basketfuls, which is a number that often symbolizes completeness in the Bible. And lastly, back in chapter 6, the crowd is in Jewish territory, whereas in chapter 8, they are in a region called the Decapolis, which is, and you've guessed it, Gentile territory. In other words, Mark is showing us that the bread that Jesus provides has been offered to Jews, and now it is also being offered to Gentiles. That, In other words, it's being offered to the rest of the world, Back in chapter seven, verse twenty four to thirty, a Syrophoenician woman had actually asked for this to happen. She'd asked for crumbs from the table from the children's table. And here we see that the that the Gentiles receive more than crumbs, they receive bread just as the Jews had in chapter six. This is Jesus' answer. The bread Jesus provides is now available to anyone who will take and eat of it. In fact, Jesus is not, and I think this is important to note, that Jesus is not a tribal deity here. Our God is not a tribal deity. What do I mean by that? What I mean is he's not just our God. In the sense that he's good for us, he's our crutch to get us through life. Or he's the God who works for me because of my personal background or experience. He's not just the God of our group, and then there's another God for the church down the road or for the mosque. No, this is the God of the universe who is offering bread for the greatest need of all of humanity, not just us. He's not a tribal deity. But that raises a question What is this bread that Jesus provides? What is it? What is it meant to symbolize? It's interesting to notice that there's a lot of tr- talk of bread if you read through the Gospel of Mark on your own. You'll notice this. Up until chapter 8, there's, there, there are many different mentions of bread, especially as we get closer to this chapter. But curiously, after verse 19 of, our chap- of chapter 8 before us, it kind of stops. We don't hear anything about bread. And then suddenly, it pops up again in chapter 14, verse 22. And I'd like you to turn there with me. I'm going to do the same. And we'll just read through this together. So again, we haven't heard much about bread. And suddenly we have this pop up in chapter 14, verse 22. I'll read. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. I wonder if you see the resemblance between this what's happening right here in verse 22 of chapter 14 and what we've just read in the feeding of the 4,000 Jesus takes bread right he blesses it it's actually the same word in the original it's, it's the word the word we get uh, from which we get the word Eucharist and he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples you see that the only thing that's different in this, in this little account here, in this verse, in chapter 14, is that we get an explanation for what the bread is. What does it symbolize? This is my body. This is my body. Jesus isn't saying that this is literally his body. We would have take issue with uh, the Catholic interpretation of this verse but he is showing that just as physical bread satisfies a crucial need for physical life, Jesus' body will satisfy a crucial need for spiritual life, for eternal life. And Jesus describes what this crucial need is that the bread meets, what is the hunger that we really have in chapter 10, verse 45. Let's just look at that. Chapter 10, verse 45 in in Mark. Again, we have the bread, which is his body. What what need does that bread meet? Chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our need arouses Jesus' compassion. Especially our greatest need. Our need to be forgiven, to be reconciled with God. You see, the good news message of Jesus is that Jesus himself is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. He's our ransom, the price that God paid to his own justice, to satisfy his own just anger against us. And he did that for every person, no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, who will place their faith, their trust in Jesus, in his death in their place. Jesus is the bread that truly satisfies, because he satisfies our greatest need. He doesn't just care about people fainting, which is which was what aroused his compassion in, in verses one to ten. Although he does care about those little needs, but he cares especially about your soul. He cares about whether you appear before God's judgment seat with a life that doesn't measure up, or whether you appear with your record clean and wearing his perfect righteousness. That's why this story, that's why the Gospel of Mark doesn't end with Jesus on a throne in Jerusalem. It ends with him on a Roman cross. He's the bread that satisfies all those who place their faith in him. All those who will take and eat. But of course we'd need to believe it, wouldn't we? Verses 11 to 13 show us Jesus' first negative reaction. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, Jesus was moved with compassion before a world in need. Now in chapter 8, verses 11 to 13, we see Jesus deeply troubled before a skeptical generation. In verse 10, Jesus has jumped into a boat and he and his disciples have rowed across the lake of Galilee to a Jewish region that's called Del And in verse 11, they arrive at the, at the shore, and it seems like uh, maybe a bit out of nowhere. These Pharisees, his, his old adversaries from chapter 7 and 3, they come out of the bushes, uh, so to speak, and they demand that he show them a sign from heaven. I wonder if you've ever done this in your life asked it for a sign from heaven from God, or something spectacular where you said, God, prove to me that you exist. But you know, Mark lets us in on the motivations, the motives, the reasons behind the Pharisees' question in verse 11. You see that? They asked him why? To test him. To test him. Did you know that skepticism is dishonest? Let me say that again skepticism is dishonest. What do I mean? Isn't it the opposite? Normally, don't we need to question things? Don't we need to doubt in order to get to the truth? Isn't that the way? Well, the problem with the attitude of a skeptic is that it leads him to, him or her to question everything except himself, except herself. A skeptic is ready to question anything else except for himself. Skeptics doubt everything except their own motives for doubting. Isn't that interesting? The famous agnostic Aldous Huxley, a writer of um, Brave New World, he was a skeptic. But it's interesting because he was a bit more, I think, honest than many skeptics are today. He wrote the following words in ends and means, and bear with me, it's a bit of a, a long quote. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a a meaning. And consequently, I assumed that it had none. And I was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem of pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt, for most of my friends, in the philosophy of meaninglessness, was essentially the, the philosophy of meaning, meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. the supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning the christian meaning they insisted of the world there was one admirably simple method to of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt we would deny that the world had any meaning whatever You see, Ellis Huxley had reasons. He had motives for doubting Christianity. He wanted sexual freedom, and he admits it. So did the Pharisees for doubting Jesus. They had motives. They had reasons. And so do we when we ask skeptical questions of the Bible and of Christ. If you're someone who has objections to the Bible's message, can I issue a gentle challenge to you? Write down the following question or remember it and think over this later on, perhaps this evening, and try not to answer too quickly. Ask yourself this question. If Christianity is true, what do I lose? If Christianity is true, what do I lose? And then ask yourself, could the answer to that question not be influencing me in wanting to doubt this message? Could the answer not reveal that actually I don't want this to be true? The Pharisees, you see, they had seen signs already in chapter 1, verse 44. Jesus had sent a healed man to the Jewish authorities as a proof to them, as he says. And since then, he's been doing things that only God could do, and he's doing it in broad daylight. Do you think if Jesus had shown them a sign from heaven, they would have believed? Not likely. Not likely. In chapter 3, they dismissed his miracles as as the work of Satan. If God were to really reveal himself to someone who says, God, show yourself to me, would he really believe it? If he's got that kind of skeptical attitude, he will dismiss that as a hallucination, as a dream, as, as a trick. Because deliberate doubt is indestructible. Perhaps you've seen this if you're a Christian and you've had conversations with people like this, like I have. And you've seen this deliberate, willful doubt. And it is indestructible. No proof can get through. No proof is ever enough if you don't want something to be true. You see, the skeptic's problem is not an intellectual problem, but a moral one, a sin problem. That was the Pharisee's problem. No proof is ever enough if you don't want Jesus to be right. How many people in our generation won't even crack open a Bible to notice that the 40 some authors are writing over a period of 1,500 years, three different continents, three different languages, and they all manage to be talking about the same person, Jesus Christ. How many people will not even consider that? How many people as well will will dismiss the Bible as obviously lost in translation because it's been translated, it's old, it's been copied, ignoring the fact that we have five thousand five hundred copies of the New Testament alone, with which we can we can clearly see that there has not been any change in doctrine. Our Bibles have not changed. They are the most reliable document from ancient history. Just for for the record, that 5,500 copies, that's 5,490 copies more than what we have for Plato, than what we have for Julius Caesar. Do we believe that they existed? Do we believe that we have what they wrote? So why are we so skeptical about Christianity today? I think the answer is quite simple. It's that questioning is less costly than believing. Questioning Christianity is far less costly than believing its message. Look how Jesus responds to the Pharisee skepticism in verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. This is deep pain, anger, sadness. It's hard to know exactly which, but it's a very deep emotion. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? And then he pronounces a judgment, doesn't he? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation Generation. at that moment Jesus turned his back on the Pharisees he got into his boat he sailed off and left the Pharisees on the beach on the shore with their doubt and I fear that Jesus will do the same for many in our generation perhaps even some who are sitting here and I hope not There comes a time when that danger sign, that danger sign that's flashing, stops flashing. Where the person who was open at one point to reading the Bible, to to questioning themselves, suddenly gains an unusual amount of confidence in their own opinions. There comes a time when that door for belief slams shut. And at that point... All that we have left to expect from Jesus is a back turned and judgment. And I don't wish that on anyone. I fear that many of my own friends and even some of my family are in this case on the shore with the Pharisees, blissfully awaiting the day of judgment. And it's terrifying. So please, if you are in this case, please take this as a warning sign. If you can actually hear what I'm saying and understand it and make sense of it, then listen. If you can see what I mean, then then, then, then believe this message. And don't play with fire. Don't say no for now. Listen up while you can, as if your life depends on it, because it really does. Your eternal life does. So we've seen Jesus moved with compassion before a world in need in verses 1 to 10. We've seen Jesus deeply moved before a skeptical generation in verses 11 to 13. And now, in verses 14 to 21, we'll see Jesus dumbfounded before the unbelief of his own messengers. After Jesus and his disciples leave the shore, there's a dilemma. You see that? In verse 14, it tells us that in the rush of getting uh, off into the boat, in verse 10, uh, the disciples had forgotten to take one of the seven baskets full of bread, and they'd only had one baguette with them on the the boat. And so you can imagine these hungry, perhaps young men, needing to split this thing into 13 pieces. Maybe if you're a teenager, you can understand that. I don't think we have any teenagers. But then Jesus starts saying something that sounds a lot more important. In verse 15, he says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. But the apostles still just have one thing on their mind, baguette. And so they answer in verse 16, you know, they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. See, the disciples, it may sound crazy, but the disciples are practical blokes, aren't they? They're pragmatic, down to earth guys, and when Jesus speaks, they hear the things that are relevant to them. They're thinking bread, so they hear bread. They run Jesus' words through a filter. They have their own desires and their own appetites, and they come up with the answer that they had in the beginning. Now, how many times do we read the Bible in exactly the same way? I read a passage or listen to a sermon like this one, and I only listen to what speaks to me personally. And it's not bad for for a passage or the Bible to speak to you, but often I find that can be code word for what I want. I listen for what I want. I listen for my own ideas. I listen to hear myself patted on the back for what I already believe. God's word gets sifted out, and all that's left is my word. Jesus is dumbstruck at the disciples' faithlessness, at their faithless response, and frankly quite confusing response. In verse 17 and 18, he asks the disciples, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you eyes and and you do not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you know that what's most shocking? I think to me at least, what's most shocking about the, the response of the disciples is how much they look like the disciples or like the Pharisees. Have you noticed? They look so much like the Pharisees in this scene. When Jesus warns the disciples against 11 of the Pharisees and of Herod, he's actually warning them against the influence of bad shepherds. Remember in verses 1 to 10, he's presented as the good shepherd. And in verses 11 to 13, Mark had helped to unmask the Pharisees in their dishonest doubt. They're bad shepherds who doubt and who oppose Jesus. Two chapters earlier in chapter 6, he showed us Herod, a bad king, who chose to kill one of Jesus' allies rather than lose face. And so the Pharisees and Herod are unbelievers, or unbelieving bad shepherds opposed to Jesus, and therefore they are not to be followed. They're not to be followed. They're not to have an influence or or our ear. But something seems to be fermenting on that boat with the disciples. Mark says two times, Have you noticed? disgust, the, the disciples disgust in verses 16 and 17. In English, it's kind of hard to get how negative of a word this is. But if you look in all the rest of Mark, how this word is used, it's actually used always of Jesus' enemies, aside from what's talking about the disciples, Jesus' enemies as they are opposing Jesus. What's scary is just how much the disciples are starting to act like Pharisees here. And you see that again in verse 18, Jesus accuses his disciples of having hard hearts, but in chapter 3, verse 5, I believe, the ones with hard hearts were the Pharisees. Not only that, but also in verses 17 and 18, Jesus asked why his disciples are unable to understand, to see, and to hear But Jesus made it very clear in chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, that those who aren't able to understand, see, and hear are those who are outside of the kingdom. So we understand that Jesus is shocked when he sees this kind of reaction from his disciples, this kind of unbelief. It smells a lot like leaven. But why does it matter whether the disciples here believe or not? You might be asking. Well, let's look back a minute. Remember that Jesus will soon be entrusting his worldwide mission to make the gospel known, the gospel that's about him. To And He's how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to do it through his messengers, the apostles. Are you starting to see why this mission is going to need a miracle if it's going to work who is going to proclaim the the gospel to the nations that Jesus is the bread that satisfies that he's our ransom who's going to do that these disciples you see Jesus had sent them on that mini mission in chapter 6 to train them to do exactly this to do mission and that's also why he had uh, brought, he'd involved them in the two feeding miracles. He had originally asked them to get involved and then he'd at least had them pass out the bread. He's equipping them. He's involving them in mission. But just as Jesus points out in verses uh, 19 to 21, being with Jesus is not enough to equip them for mission. Being with Jesus is not enough to make you a missionary. It's not even enough to be with God's people that's that's not enough to make you even a Christian it's the same for us it's never enough to be around Christians and do Christian Christian Christian-y things which are important things if we aren't clear on Jesus' identity and on Jesus' authority and power do you understand that? We cannot do anything. If we are not clear on Jesus' identity on who He is, who are we actually meeting around, and what is He capable of? The mission can never be accomplished by people who do not understand these two things. But there is hope. There truly is hope and we see it it's, i mean i i imagine you're feeling kind of depressed right now if you've read through uh, up until now you seem we've gotten to kind of kind of the end of the story and it's all bad news and we kind of ended with this conclusion of jesus mission needs a miracle and we don't see any but actually the good news is that on either side of this story we have a miracle i don't know if you noticed that the first one is in chapter 7 verses 31 to 37 And it involves a blind and mute, or a deaf and mute man. And the second one is on the tail end of the story in chapter eight, verses twenty-two to twenty-six. And it involves a blind man. And they're both real historical people, but Mark includes them in this story in order to teach us something about unbelief and its solution. Like the deaf man and the or the deaf and mute man, the disciples can't hear. Have you noticed? They can't hear what Jesus is saying. They hear whatever they want to hear. Like the blind man, they can't see. They don't see what's going on in front of their eyes when Jesus is feeding crowds, showing that he is God, that he's come in the flesh. Remember in chapter 8, verse 17, Jesus shows us that this means that they don't understand. If they can't see, they can't hear, that means they don't understand. That's what that image symbolizes. And if they don't understand, they can't believe. But these miracles also reveal something new. Have you noticed that? There's, there's something else in these miracles. In the first one, the deaf and the mute man, in chapter 7, he's not, he's not able to hear, but he's also not able to speak. What does that mean? Well, unless these messengers understand who Jesus is and they understand his authority and what he can do, they'll never be able to proclaim the good news to the world. If you can't hear, you can't you can't hear, you can't see, you can't speak other. But the reason I said there is hope is because what Jesus does for these two men is amazing. Look in chapter uh, chapter seven, verses thirty-one to thirty-seven, Jesus touches and speaks to the deaf and mute man, and instantly his ears are opened and his tongue is loosed, literally unchained. And in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, Jesus touches and speaks to the blind man, and his eyes are opened. He can see. Is there hope for deaf, mute, and blind people? For deaf, mute, and blind disciples? Yes. And that hope is Jesus. You see, Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news from beginning to end. Jesus' mission for the disciples back then and also for the church today to reach the nations with the gospel has always been impossible without Jesus. I want to say that again. Jesus' mission for the disciples and for the church today has always been impossible without Jesus. That's why it's no use trying to attract people to services by doing doing a lot of fun activities Not that those things are bad, we can do those as Christians, but that's not what's gonna work. That's not where the power is. That's not why doing having a certain style of music or or changing our message so that it seems more relevant and less offensive is not gonna work. It might bring people for a generation, but their kids will go away. We'll end up like the liberal churches down the road. Because the only thing that works is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. In popular Baptist exists today because Jesus opened the eyes, the ears, and unchained the tongues of these first disciples so that they, they could proclaim his good news, despite all of their flaws, and there were many, many flaws. There was hope for the disciples. And thanks to Jesus, there's also hope for the world. If you don't recognize Jesus as your king, as the true king of the universe, the universal king, then please read through chapter 8, verses 1 to 10 again. Look at Jesus' compassion. Look how your need attracts his compassion. That's his disposition towards you. And then reread chapter 10, verse 45, and see how far that compassion goes. It led Jesus to die on a cross for people like you wouldn't you gladly give up your life for someone who gave up his life for you? Isn't that exactly the kind of king you want to serve? One who who didn't serve himself but chose to serve others by giving his life for them. Jesus is the bread that can satisfy your deepest need if you are not yet a Christian, as many of the Christians here would attest. You can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. You can be you don't have to live with a, 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 this sense of guilt and shame that you just carry around and try to deal with with medication or alcohol or entertainment or psychologists. You can actually be rid of all of that because Jesus died on the cross. Confess your sins to him and trust that his death is enough to include you in his kingdom. And this brings us to our last point. Thanks to Jesus, there is also hope for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, here at Poplar Baptist. We are much, much much more like the disciples, unfortunately, than we'd like to admit in this story. I feel convicted seeing their responses, seeing their confusion and their lack of faith. Maybe you do too. We often take a painfully Slow time to change, to understand, and to see, and to hear. We forget who our king is and how powerful he is, and how it doesn't matter if we only have seven loaves. He can do miraculous things because he is powerful, and it doesn't depend on us. Like the disciples, we're not good missionary candidates, you and I. And I can tell you I'm not we're not trustworthy we're not reliable but Jesus is if Jesus' mission for the church ultimately depends on the church then it is it's going to fail just like the culture predicts it's going to fail just like Voltaire predicted that the church would be gone in a hundred years if it's human then it will fail like Gamaliel said it will fail if it's not from God it'll fail The mission will not be a success. But if it depends on Jesus, then it's guaranteed to succeed. Jesus makes blind eyes see. He makes deaf ears hear. He makes bound tongues talk. He died. He rose. He ascended to the right hand of God. And he is reigning. He paid our ransom and he is building his church. And he will use us to reach this lost world with the only bread that can satisfy his own body offered freely for us. So do you see? Do you hear? Do you believe? Then go and tell. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, that you've given us Jesus as your good news for the world. Father, we confess that we we are untrustworthy people. On our best days, we're completely unimpressive. And Father, we confess for those of us who are Christians that there are still areas of unbelief, there's still ways that that we have leaven in our lives, Father, that needs to be perched out. And we thank you, Lord, that through Jesus, for through Jesus we are being drawn to see and to hear. Thank you that you it's your by your power, Lord Jesus, that we are able to understand, that we're able to grow, that we're able to be the kind of missionaries you call us to be in this world. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not a believer, who has not yet made made that step of recognizing Jesus as the true and legitimate king, of confessing their sin and, and leaving their crown at Jesus' feet, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would make that possible even today. If there's anyone who's skeptical, Lord, please help them to doubt their doubts, to be honest about the truth, to see that you are the truth. Open their eyes, Father.